0: Beloved, it is Sunday morning, February 7th. We are looking at the end of Romans chapter 8 in our study called The Reign of Life. I want to begin uh, by reading the first stanza of 535 in the Trinity, which is, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. And then I'll pray for us. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love, leading onward, leading homeward, to thy glorious rest above. Let's pray for a moment. Our Father, where would we be without your love for your son, his love for us. Oh, Lord, what a rescuing, delivering, saving love it is. And that's the love that has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that part of your job description is to show us not only how deeply undeserving we are of this love, but how rich and great and wide and Uh, wonderful this love is so we pray as a result of our study together the word of God would testify in fresh and new and vivid ways how great is this love and that nothing in heaven and earth no created thing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord this is the obvious result of our union with Christ we are as loved as Jesus is by his father what good news and not because of us but all because of him. So what a savior, saving, helping, loving, keeping. You are with us to the end. Thank you, Lord, for these dear saints, for their lives, for your love for them. They are trophies of your grace. They are hungry for the word of truth. Would you satisfy their desire to know you, to know the word of God. Satisfy it by the power of the Holy Spirit that we might together love each other well and this poor, broken world, even as you do, even as you love us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, let me go to screen share, and I'm going to pull up the handout. And thank you for muting your... um... You muted yourself. Okay. Mike, you muted yourself. I hear you. Thank you. All good now? Yes. All right. I don't know how I did that. All right. So, oh, because I don't like the way I'm reaching here. All right. So we are on our handout at Overview, the Father's Commitment to His Son's Family. Let me give you just a definition of love so we know what we're talking about. Love does the best it can for the other's best. And what we're going to see in this study is that God has done nothing less than his best for our best, obviously giving us Jesus. I'm told that Apple creator uh, Steve Jobs is said to have walked around his business and he would come up to somebody who was working on something a cell phone, a computer, an iPad, whatever else Apple produces. He'd say, "What are you working on?" Well, I'm working on this. And he would say, "Make it better." Well, they said, "Well, look, you know, this is as good as it can get." "Make it better." "Make it faster." "Make it smaller." make it more powerful, make it more efficient, make it better. And that's apparently one of the reasons we have such compact, powerful electronic devices that we carry around with us. Steve Jobs constantly urged those working on his products to make it better. When it comes to the love of God for you and Jesus, you cannot make it better. It is impossible to improve upon it. It's impossible to make it better. It can't get faster, more efficient, whatever. It is is beyond improvement. And that's essentially what Paul is showing us at the end of Romans 8. And we're going to dig into each verse beginning in 31. But let me do a flyover to remind you uh, uh, what basically is going on here. And that is... Between verses 28 and 39, you have these wonderful pieces all about the father's commitment to his son's family. What is earth history? Why did God create the earth? Why did God create mankind? He did so to give his son a family. He did so to give his son, Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters to enjoy whom he would love, whom they would love, and enjoy one another for all eternity. That is the purpose of creation. The father giving his son a family. And so what we have here, I just uh, delineated in terms of a bunch of Ps. We have uh, we have all, all the things God is doing for you on your behalf, expressions of his love, to give you and secure you for his son. So you have providence, God's purpose is fulfilled for you, Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So what should that fill your heart with? Peace, joy, confidence. God wants these doctrines to give you those graces in abundance. Peace joy, confidence. Then we saw predestination, his plan to make you like Jesus. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. What should that give your heart? Peace, joy, confidence. Then we saw perseverance. It's God's pleasure to preserve you for his son. Verse 30, and the, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. God is the one doing all these things, securing your eventual uh, pleasure in the presence of Jesus and whose presence there is fullness of joy and his right hand pleasures forever. That's glory. What should that give your heart? Peace, joy, confidence. Provision. His- His power to supply your every need. And this, again, we're going to begin to tease out these verses beginning here specifically. Verse 31, and then propitiation. Verse 33, his pardon for your sins. What should these things bring your heart? Peace, joy, confidence, love. And finally, his protection. God's prevailing grace over all your enemies. We're going to tease out those verses very specifically. What should that? That the prevailing grace of God over all your enemies, his protection, bring your heart, peace, joy, confidence. So Christian doctrine is immensely and eminently practical. It should give your life purpose, peace, joy, confidence, love, light, help all these good things. John Newton, reflecting on God's sovereignty and God's generosity, wrote this. Everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. So that's an expression of our confidence in the sovereignty of God. Everything necessary that he sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds and God's generosity to supply our every need until he gets us to his Son in glory. So what we're looking at here then is the unwavering love of God, the unchangeability of his purposes, and the steadfastness of his commitment to your eternal glory. That's essentially the three things all these verses are about. These are designed to promote in you So if this isn't happening, you're not rightly understanding these verses. If this isn't happening, these verses are bouncing off your heart, not penetrating them. If these things aren't happening, there is a default somewhere in your understanding or application. Doctrine is meant to change us existentially, to make a difference in the way that we live. Doctrine is meant as water and fertilizer and sunshine on a seed to bring forth fruit. Here are some of the fruits these doctrines, these verses are designed to promote. Humility, not arrogance. No one can say, well, God elected me, therefore I'm better than someone else. Absolutely not. Christianity is the only religion in the world that you can't brag about being in it. Because you're a Christian in spite of yourself. And what it took was God himself dying for you when you were his enemy to bring you into relationship with himself. You add nothing to your salvation but sin. Nothing. Nothing but humility. Uh, These doctrines are designed to promote assurance, not apprehension. I think somebody needs to find their mute button. Thank you. Assurance, not apprehension. Uh, apprehension, responsibility, not apathy. So we don't take these doctrines and do nothing. They promote us into engage with others in our world for God's glory because we have nothing to lose and nothing to fear. This, it, these doctrines should free you to be incredibly engaged in so many different levels. Responsibility, not apathy. They're designed to promote holiness not complacency, mission, not privilege, as in sitting behind a gated community, never engaging with those who need Jesus. We uh, just, just, just to give you an example. One of your elders joined our prayer time this morning, Frank McGovern, and one of the things he prayed for was his witness to his neighbor who's, who's not well, who looks like he's facing death. So there is there's a man who takes these doctrines and with responsibility, is on mission to his neighbors to share the gospel. We prayed for opportunities this morning to share the gospel. Thank you, Frank, for that example. These doctrines are designed to promote peace, not confusion. If there's confusion in your thinking through these doctrines, well, find someone and talk it through. And some of these things raise lots of questions. That's fine. The truth never fears questions. Let's talk about those questions so we can understand what the Bible teaches. Because God is not a God of confusion. He doesn't reveal these things to us to confuse us, but to bring us peace. They're designed to bring awe and not speculation, gratitude, not self-reliance trust in him, not doubt, rest in his promises and purposes, not fear, service, not selfishness. So look at your life, and particularly at the things on the right uh, side of the equation. If think these things are present, maybe they're betraying, some fault in your thinking or some place where you're not applying the gospel to your life. Because the gospel is designed to promote humility, assurance, responsibility, holiness, mission, peace, all, gratitude, trust, rest, service. Okay. I think you believe that, but that's worth stating as we go in. Now we want to start exegeting verse 31 to 39. And basically I'm calling these five Unanswerable questions. Oh, you'll see what I mean by that in a second. Paul begins this last section, we've called it a fireworks of assurance. He's brought us to the Mount Himalaya of experiencing the love of God and what it means for us personally and for all eternity. And he begins this section with this transitional verse, what shall we say to these things? Translated, Paul is saying, How can we summarize the impact of what we've just relished? Virtually everything in the book up until 8, chapter 8, verse 30, and particularly all of chapter 8, and especially these last verses, uh, talking about the Spirit's work in us, interceding for us, God's purposes in 28 his predestining, glorifying love, etc. What shall we say to these things? He wants, he's inviting you to reflect with him. Tease it out. Think it through. So he answers that question, what shall we say to these things, with a question. It's just a literary device that he wants to show you there's no argument against this. So essentially, Paul is going to show that his argumentation in this section is what we're calling the logic of heaven, the Latin a, a, majority, ad, minus, which is called arguing from the greater to the lesser. So if your kids woke up this morning and said, mom and dad, the snow is forecast. We need an inch of snow to go sledding. How many inches of snow did we get? We got six inches of snow. Guess what? We can go sledding. Arguing from the greater, there's six inches out there, to the lesser. We only need one inch of snow to go sledding. Arguing from the greater to the lesser. This is the way Paul argues. It's a very compelling way to argue. It's designed to convince us beyond a doubt to set aside from our thinking, fear, questioning, wondering. Arguing from the greater to the lesser. And by doing so, Paul subjects our confidence in the love of God. So he's brought you into verse 31. At this point, you're supposed to be overflowing in your heart with confidence in the love of God. Again, Paul doesn't leave you there. He says, okay, good. That's where God wants you. He wants you living without fear, unbridled confidence that God loves you. But let's take that and let's subject it to a series of questions. Each of the questions is sort of unanswerable unanswerable in the sense that the, the answer to the objections he's going to subject the love of God to is no or no thing. No or no thing. And then when we get to verse 39, he answers with the most comprehensive and unambiguous terms. Can anything take uh, you from the love of God, nothing else in all of creation will be separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That sort of ends the first half of Romans. Uh, he, he, this, is his, his, this is where he wants your heart to land. I think it was J.I. Packer teaching on Romans that said, Romans 8 brings you into the warm side of the house. So most of our houses have a northern exposure and maybe a southern exposure. Northern exposures tend to be the cold side of the house. Southern exposures are where all the sun pours in. It's the warm side of the house. You probably have one of those in your house. J.I. Packer says that Romans 8, and particularly this last crescendo of assurance of God's love, is the warm side of the house. This is where God wants you living. If so if you feel like you're in doldrums, if you feel like God doesn't love you, if you feel like your heart is cold, if you feel like things are bleak, you're looking out the window on the cold side of the house, go to the warm side of the house, which is this argumentation of Paul's in Romans 8, 31 to 39. So, He answers his question, what shall we say to these things? He wants you to keep digging into it, to leave this chapter absolutely persuaded that nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. He answers that with actually a series of five questions. Question one, if God is for us, and of course, certainly he is, that is isn't calling that into question, The sense is, since God is for us, surely God is for us, who can be against us? So he wants to reduce all of his arguments to essentially one. God is for you. The Father loves you. The judge is satisfied. The Lord of history controls your destiny. See, think about what the ultimate fear of a human being should be. What, should an ulti- what is the worst thing that a-, that a human being could face? God being against them. The wrath of God. There's nothing worse than that. There's nothing worse than an eternity paying for your sins in hell. <laughs> nothing worse. We need a-, a mute button. Thank you out there. Nothing worse than God being against you. It's interesting in that 1 Peter passage, uh, 1 Peter 5, where he enjoins humility to us. He says, God gives grace to the humble, and he opposes the proud. That's the worst thing that, that a humble person would want, God opposing them. So if God is for us, and certainly he is, he raises the question, who can be against us? If God is for us, then there's nothing greater than God. Nothing could be against us. Paul seems to be drawing on on a couple places from the Old Testament. Psalm 56, 9, David writes, Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. Maybe Paul had read Psalm 56 that morning in his devotions, and he's drawing this into his argumentation. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Look how practical that is. Why does David have such unbridled knowledge that God is for him? He's in his word. In God whose word I praise. Why does he have such unbridled trust in God? What is diluting his fears, and he had lots of reasons to be afraid. Most of his adult life, he was being pursued by somebody. He has a relationship with the word of God, in God whose word I praise. Why does he praise God's word? He knows it. He sees its majesty. To him, it's like honey. It's better than silver and gold. It has all those glorious qualities that are detailed in Psalm 19 and Psalm 119. In God I trust, I will not be afraid. So if God is your trust, there's nothing you should fear. What can man do to me? Man is tiny, small. It's like you're walking outside and there's this half of a worm on the street. Are you afraid of that worm? Of course not. That's man compared to God being for you. And then Psalm 118, verse 5. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Uh, that, that very idea is picked up in Hebrews 13.6. You can reference that sometime if you want to. So there you go. Paul may have been looking at these psalms as he's drawing on his argumentation, arguing from the greater, if God is for me to the lesser, I'm never going to fear a man. Think about what Jesus said in his public teaching. Don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So there's a sense in which the fear of hell, the terror of hell, that's okay to drive us to salvation. You've heard of fire and brimstone preaching, the threat of eternal a damnation is—that's okay. Jesus is is saying, in a sense, may that drive you to God, and not fear human beings. You don't want your life in a prison of fearing people who can kill the body. There's something far, far greater than that, and that's the fear of the Lord. So the terror of hell drives us to God, and we no longer are in terror of God. It's the fear of the Lord that is a reverence and all a delight, a sense of you are so wonderful. I can't imagine doing anything to disappoint you. You are so splendid and glorious and loving and kind and merciful. I want all of my life to be a response of joyful gratitude toward that. That's the fear of the Lord that we experience once we're saved. Okay, guys, question one. If God is for us, who can be against us? Do you see how he's arguing from the greater? If God, who can be against us? There's nothing greater than God. Everything is less than God. We shouldn't fear any of those lesser things. Question two. Who this is, we're just on such holy ground here on verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, How will he not also, with him, graciously give us all things? So think about why Paul raises this question. If you go back to question one, if God is for us, who can be against us, we can reason from the person of God. There's nothing greater than God, and therefore everything is less than God. But then we can wonder, okay, In exactly what way has God shown that he's for me? Is there evidence? Can I point to something? Paul anticipates that. So that's what the background to this question. Oh, you want evidence? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Do you hear the assumption in the beginning of this verse? God who did not spare his own son given your natural state as God's enemy, given your natural condition as wretched, sinful, vile, hater of God, and God was asked to give up his son for you, the reasonable, logical thing to say would be, no way. I'm not giving up my son for those kinds of people. Maybe for really good people, there'd be something of an exchange. So the assumption behind the beginning of the verse, he who did not spare his own son assumes God would be absolutely right. He would be in his clear mind. God would be just to not give up his sinless, flawless, glorious, beautiful, eternal, beloved son for his enemies. But this is in fact what he did. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He gave him up for us as a sacrifice in our place, a substitutionary sacrifice. Christ was given up for us. We deserve the cross. We deserve that horrific death. Jesus met the demands of justice taking our sins in our place. So what you hear in this probably are echoes of Genesis 22, verse 12, where the angel of the Lord instructs Abraham to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice, and and of course Abraham is willing to do it And at the last second, the hand of knife of judgment is stayed. And the angel reflects, you have not withheld your son, your only son, this this picture of God the Father not withholding being willing to give up his son for us, his only son. And you then hear echoes of Isaiah 53:6. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus indeed went under the knife of judgment that sacrifice that our sins deserve. Do you hear in this echoes of Galatians uh, uh, 2.20 that the Son of God loved me and gave himself up for me. How's the love of God demonstrated? Jesus gave himself up for you when you didn't deserve it. A sinless sacrifice satisfying to the Father. Glory, glory, glory to God. And Paul had already said... In, uh, in Romans 4, that he was delivered up for our transgressions. So think about it this way. We give our kids Christmas gifts and birthday gifts. At their age, we just write them a check. So Janice and I say, you know, what's a reasonable amount of money for a Christmas gift? So we write the check, and we get the bill, and we put it in a Christmas card. Here you go. Now, is it true? That we could have given them more money. Let's just suppose it's $50. So our children open up their Christmas card. They look at it. Merry Christmas. We love you. Here's a $50 bill. Is it true that we could have given them more than $50? Yeah, that's true. That's that's true. In the case of what God has given you in Jesus. He could not have given more. There was no more to give. God gave you all that He had to give. He gave you Himself. He gave you His Son. It's very difficult for us to wrap our minds around that, particularly in light of God doing this for His enemies. I heard a story one time, uh, it may be apocryphal, it may be true, I don't know, but I'm going to share it because I think it illustrates the point. There was a wealthy man who had a magnificent art collection. He died, and in his will, he determined that the art would be auctioned off. So the executors of the state sent out all these invitations to all these famous art collectors and dealers and such and such, and the day came for the auction. All these magnificent paintings were there. All the uh, people were sitting ready for the auction. And the auctioneer started the auction by saying, "Okay, first painting to bid on is this portrait of the wealthy man's son. And it turned out it was a very inferior piece of art. It's not something any collector would have been drawn to. It was mediocre. But nonetheless, it was this piece of art that this wealthy man had. It was a portrait of his son. And everyone was sitting on their you know, their little paddles with their numbers. Nobody was saying anything. No, So time passed. It gets very tense. All these collectors want to get on to the important stuff. What's wrong? Come on, come on. Finally, somebody says, okay, I bid $100 on that. Sold. Auctions over. And all the people there are stunned. What? Yes, the auctioneer said it was stipulated in the wealthy man's will that whoever takes the sun gets it all. So this person who bought the portrait of the sun for $100 got the entire art collection. That's what this verse is saying. Whoever gets the sun gets it all. Do you see the reasoning from the greater to the lesser? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There's no more that God could give you in his son. Therefore, everything else below that, he is delighted, gracious, merciful, kind, compassionate to give you. Use this when you pray for things. Set your case before the Lord. Lord, if you wouldn't withhold your son from, for me, then why wouldn't you give me this? He graciously gives us all things. And by all means, don't use this as some might be tempted to to say, okay, well, I want that Cadillac. I'm going to start praying for that Cadillac. All things refers at least to all things necessary in your life to enjoy, know, and glorify God. All things necessary to live, enjoy, know, taste, and see that the Lord is good. That's the all things that's in view here. And should we pray for a daily bread? Somebody famous taught us to give us a stay or a daily bread? Of course. Praying for our basic needs. But we have needs that exceed bread and a roof over our heads and clothes, all of which Jesus tells us don't worry about. My Father's committed to giving you those even before you ask them. But we go and we plead our case before the Father. And we say, you didn't spare your son. You should have spared him for me, for somebody like me. He delivered himself up for me. Now, you and your son, will you not graciously, out of grace, out of mercy, give me the things I need to know you, enjoy you, see you, savor you, glorify you, make you known, reveal your love to other people? Of course he will. That's question two. Question three. Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So trying to connect the verses here Why does Paul go here in his thinking? Because he understands that the more you grow as a Christian, the more you grow in your sense of the love of Jesus for you, the more unlovely you feel. Because the more you see Jesus, the more you see you are not like Jesus. Remember David, whose word I praise? The more you know the word of God, yes, the more you praise it, but the more that word exposes your heart. It exposes your sin. It exposes your pride. So a person with a tender conscience experiencing the love of God feels like, oh my goodness, I, I have this guilt. I have this sense of condemnation. I have this sense of letting God down. Paul then walks you into a courtroom where you, the believer, are on trial. And the judge calls forward the prosecution. There's Mike Sherritt, this person who belongs to Jesus. May the prosecution come forward with their case against Mike. No one comes forward. Prosecution, come forward. No one comes forward. Because God, the judge, Is satisfied. God the judge gave up his son for you. You are acquitted. You are not guilty. You are declared righteous in Jesus. You are completely cleansed of your sins. He has buried your sins in the depths of the sea. Removed them as far as the east is from the west. There is no one to bring a charge against you. (laughs) It's God who justifies. Maybe in view here. Uh, Paul is thinking of that scene in Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet, chapter 3, 1 through 5, where Satan is accusing Joshua the high priest. And the accusation is put to rest because God is the one who's going to justify by his grace, by his sacrifice. So, for the tender conscience person. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? You know, people who could charge you. Satan wants to charge you. He's the accuser of the brethren. We have the claims of justice satisfied on our behalf because of the gospel. And so it is God who justifies. When God says, I'm satisfied, no one can overrule that. God has justified. You are justified. So, you see here this legal language. Um, people who are feeling unworthy of being called children, do their sin, or, and uh, any, anyone else who has the dirt on you, particularly the evil one, uh, God says, Now I've got your case. My son is your justification, my son is your righteousness, my son is your sin offering. We all have this glorious unshakable, unthwartable salvation in Jesus. Okay, that's question three. Question four. <clears throat> he teases this out a little bit more. Who is to condemn? He's still got you in the courtroom because condemnation is legal language. And I, I, I think Paul is still sensitive to the tender conscience person, who, you know, ever since the Garden of Eden, when we were created by God, we were created to be accepted by God by our performance. This was the original trial period. Adam and Eve in the Garden. Don't eat of that tree. Obey me. Do the right thing, and you will be accepted. So, we were originally fashioned to relate to God on the basis of our obedience. We sinned. But since we've been kicked out of the garden, there still is in us this need. To prove ourselves by our own doing. This need to show we're worthy. This need to earn our unrighteousness before God. This is why the gospel is so counterintuitive for people. It's why the gospel is so difficult for uh, people to believe. It's why so many churches preach works righteousness and not the gospel. Because works righteousness appeals to the human spirit. To so Paul is anticipating the tender conscience person who's saying, I know Jesus loves me, but I still sin. I deserve jet death. Will justice find me out? Will justice find me out? Paul says, Who is to condemn? Satan might try, other people might try, your conscience might try. How does he answer it? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who was interceding for us. This allusion to the right hand of God may be drawing on Psalm 110, David's vision of the exalted Christ with God sitting at the right hand. What does he do? Paul always comes back to the work of Christ in the gospel as the sole basis of our freedom from condemnation, as the sole basis of our justification, as the sole basis of our acceptance before God. Why does God accept us? On the merits of what Jesus has done. Christ Jesus is the one who died. You can't die and pay for your sins. He can. More than that, who was raised? It takes the resurrection of Christ to put the final mark on your salvation. Because if Jesus just dies without a resurrection, there's no evidence that sacrifice was accepted. And Christ died to get you to eternity. Therefore, he had to get to eternity to be representative before God. So he died. He was raised. Who was at the right hand? Who is indeed interceding for us? You see the intercession of Christ. um, uh, We're gonna, we'll see it in a little bit. Well, I'm sorry. We've we've seen it in our study before, but here is Jesus pleading. And what is the Lord pleading? What is the Lord pleading for you? Um, He is pleading his accomplishment, his performance. So you might watch the Super Bowl later this evening. And the Super Bowl is going to award an MVP to somebody. Let's just suppose for the sake of the illustration, the Super Bowl MVP goes to a quarterback, Patrick Mahomes, Tom Brady. And they're interviewed. They will likely say something like this. Hey, I couldn't have done this without my lineman who blocked well for me. I couldn't have done this without my teammates. I couldn't have done this without great coaching. The MVP will probably say something like this, that. That is not what Jesus is saying before his father interceding for you. He is not pleading how good you are, how sincere you are, how much you pray, how much you praise, how much you love him. He is interceding that he died and he was raised for you. He is interceding his merits on your behalf. Some commentators think that Paul is drawing on Isaiah 50 verse 9 where we read, But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. Jesus actually uses that phrase when he talks about going to Jerusalem to die for us. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will be eaten up. So the Apostle John understood this when he says in 1 John 2, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but those for the whole world. So Paul's going to go on and talk about propitiation here in just a little bit. So we probably need to stop there. I hope you see that again. Paul's reading. Uh, excuse, excuse me. Reasoning from the greater to the lesser. If God won't condemn you, there's no one to condemn you. If Jesus is interceding and pleading His case for you, there's nothing else you need. You're safe. You're secure if it's unthinkable that the father could turn away his son, at having been seated at the right hand of his father, then it's unthinkable you could be turned away because you are as secure as Jesus is for all eternity, being united to Jesus by faith. So we'll stop there. We're out of time. I will leave, stop, share, so I can see your lovely faces. There you are. Let me thank you again for joining us. And we can say hi to each other. Thank you. Thank you. are welcome, guys. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. All right, Frank. You all being enc- thank you. Y'all be encouraged. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. So we will finish Thank Rome- you so we- much. That was awesome. You're welcome. We'll finish baby, Abby. Okay. <laughs> oh, girl. Thanks, Mike. Hi, everyone. You're welcome. We will finish Romans He's- 8 next week. Hi Grace how you doing oh. <laughs> good job praying for your sermon yes please do so in loving one another more, more of the same kind of alright you all see good ya the same is good yes <laughs> I'll take more <laughs> hey I'm in town all week if anybody wants to say hi alright you guys thank you Good day. You too. Bye-bye.